Hello! And welcome to the super tall episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. This week, we're going to going off the news. We have a very, very special episode all about skyscrapers. I'm Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck of Axios. Hello, hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. Um, but mostly, we are joined by an extremely special guest, Stefan Al. Welcome. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. Introduce yourself. Who are you? And um, what is the name of your book? I think I gave it away already. Uh, I'm an architect and also an author of Super Tall, How the World's Largest Buildings Are Shaping Our Cities and Our Lives. First, we shape our buildings and then they shape us. Who said that? Was that Churchill? Correct. Yes. We are going to talk about how the buildings shape us what kind of revealed preferences we have in buildings, why so many super tall buildings are being built, the economics of them, the environmental impact of them. It's a wide-ranging discussion globally and in terms of subject matter, but I do get to ride my favorite hobby horse, which is 270 Park Avenue. It's all coming up on Slate Money. Stefan, let's start with super tall skyscrapers, since they're the subject of your book. There are many of them these days. These are the things that are a thousand feet or so, 300 meters or higher. Is it really difficult to build one of these things? Has it become easier? Has technology advanced? So is the reason we're seeing so many more of them just because it used to be hard and now it's easy? If, if you look at the history of super tall buildings, meaning taller tower than 300 meters or roughly a thousand feet. You see that up until the mid 20th century, there were only two, the Chrysler building and the Empire State Building. But now there's you know more than a hundred and every year there's about a dozen of new ones that are being built. You know, it's certainly a, a story of technology, right? How technology has gotten more advanced, more sophisticated. We have concrete that's stronger. We have structures that are better, elevators that are faster. Um, and, you know, we can design these things with more precision, understand and simulate wind flows. Uh, but it's also, I think, a story of societal preferences. Because if you look at the past 30 years, especially in Asia, there's been a really big push towards the city. Uh, and I think skyscrapers are kind of a symptom of that of that story. So let me just ask you, like, how, how would you disaggregate that? If you had to sort of say, on the one hand, it's just become a lot easier. The technology exists. We can pump concrete a thousand feet into the air in a way that we used not to be able to. We can make elevators that go 48 miles an hour. All of this kind of stuff, which you detail in your book, and I love, and it's fascinating, the technological stuff on the one hand, versus just the imperatives of the city on the other. Like you've got to squeeze a lot of stuff into a small area and the only way to go is up. Like which one of those two do you think is has more explanatory power in terms of explaining why we're getting a dozen of these things a year? Well, I, I think it's the, the latter, right? The fact that we've seen this incredible push towards the city, which by the way, now uh, due to COVID is maybe pausing this, this great push of urbanization. But if you look at where these towers happened, uh, they happened in places that precisely saw this incredible urban push. So for instance, China, 
right, which over the period of a single generation has added half a billion people to its cities. That's also, and not coincidentally, a place where we've seen so many of them, right? So up, I would say the 20th century was really the story of the American skyscraper, you could say, right? Uh, as it was invented in Chicago and then came to full fruition maybe in New York. But if you look at it today, the 21st century is really pointing towards Asia, right? As the Asia century as where most of the economic and urban growth is occurring. Um, and, and skyscrapers kind of exemplified that. Isn't there one other factor besides technology and move to the cities that drives the human urge to build super tall buildings would be to see if we can, would be like, who, you know, it's just like, we want to go really high. Like there, these super tall buildings, there's not a prac, no one's like, we have more people moving to the city. We got to move them into this super expensive building on West 57th Street. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, if you look at history, um, you know, the the ancient Egyptians, they built pyramids. Um, if you look at, you know, the you know, 17th century France, we see the Pope building, you know, ever higher cathedrals. Um, it's it's to some extent maybe innate, right? That we're trying to reach towards the sky. Um and it's maybe part of a larger human ambition that we're trying to break new ceilings. Um, and sometimes this comes with, with risk as well. Uh, so, you know, one of those stories may be kind of Easter Island, right? And all these resources were spent on creating these amazing statues. Um, and until today, a lot of anthropologists believe that it was this kind of desire that ultimately led to the, the society's collapse. And yet I think starting around the time of the Eiffel Tower, there's also been a sort of popular backlash to tall buildings. The pe tall buildings go up and the people, a lot of normal everyday folks, instead of going, wow, look at this amazing tall building, go, shit, that's terrible, we don't want it. Where does that come from? I, yeah, I ask myself that too. And if you look at the Eiffel Tower, it was certainly rejected by so many people. Uh, the French elite, they called it a towering smokestack. And they made a lot of plans to dismantle it. And it was only until I, Mr. Eiffel himself was able to show that his hollow tower had some utility, namely put an antenna, antenna on it so he could broad, broadcast uh, messages that they eventually and reluctantly decided to keep it stand. Now, if we look back on that, we find that kind of bizarre, right? Because today, you know, nothing represents Paris more than the Eiffel Tower, you, you could say. Uh, so what then kind of drives us to maybe <laughs> against those projects? I think part of it has to do with novelty, right? When you suddenly see something that's so tall, that's taller than everything else, uh, it feels foreign. And if you look at the reaction of, for instance, today, a lot of New Yorkers or people that visit the city and they, they see these new super tall towers, they kind of feel like, oh, this thing is sticking out like a sore thumb. It, it's not proportional to the rest of the city. Uh, and part of it is novelty. But if you look at some of the early skyscrapers, it was the same story. There were maybe only 10, 11 stories. And there was such, such a big response against it 
that we today think, oh, was that really necessary? It's not that tall. <laughs> There's many more taller buildings today. Uh, but I think that, you know, there's other things too. These towers symbolize things that people reject. So in, in New York today, a lot of these super tall towers are playgrounds for the uber rich, right? There are these billionaires' playgrounds. Uh, and, you know, some of them are so tall that they cast long shadows on Central Park. Uh, and many of them are empty uh, because people, are, they don't want to spend more than half a year there. Otherwise, they have to pay New York City taxes. How much of it do you think is really sentimental attachment to a city having a particular skyline? Like, I'm, I'm thinking specifically of the Extel building in Lower East Side and backlash to that because it, it does kind of stick out like a like a sore thumb, as you would say. And there's no kind of it's not one of the more garish or even tallest buildings that's being constructed, but it's more about where it is and what it does to the skyline. Uh, how much do you think that plays into it, especially in large cities where you already have a lot of super talls? New York is a kind of a special case because a lot of those tall towers, they're built, as we call it, as of right, meaning that the developer has the right to build them if they have the kind of air rights or, or the uh, floor area ratio uh, that they need to, to build this project. Uh, in other cities, there's a very extensive vetting process and the public is involved. Think about London, for instance. So London has a very extensive protective view corridor system. And I believe there's 13 view corridors going from iconic sites to iconic buildings. So think about you know, regions, the view from Regent's Park to, let's say, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral. Uh, and these were set up in response to what people perceived as an you know, eyesore. Uh, and these were very much respected uh, up until, I would say, you know, 10, 20 years ago. That's when also the tide started to swing the other way. So I think part of the problem uh, in, in New York seems to be that the regulatory framework allows for these acontextual projects, meaning a super dense skyscraper in a relatively low density uh, environment. But that's just a function of the way in which the zoning is regulated. Uh, it's like a distribution of bulk or a distribution of, ma of mass. Because of these FAR regulations or floor area regulations, you can move, let's say, a mass from one site to a very tall tower, meaning that the, other, the, the adjacent site will be low density because mass has been re removed. But then that this new site becomes very high density. One of the things that's happening in New York is that a very large number of the new skyscrapers, including the one that Elizabeth was talking about, are mm -hmm. residential. And you mentioned that in that sense, they become these sort of avatars of inequality. But by the same token, they only make economic sense because of the premium that people are willing to pay for mm -hmm. the luxury of living thousands of feet up in the sky you know and that has created the e the economics of all of these these buildings which wouldn't make any economic sense otherwise mm -hmm. is that something that you see when you look across the super tools in the rest of the world or mm. is that a peculiarly new york thing how much what proportion of those 12, 12 super tools a year would you say are residential yeah. no I, I think it's really representative of a larger trend when you think about 20th century skyscrapers that are extremely tall, like the Empire State Building uh, or the Sears Tower or the Chrysler Building, they were all office buildings. 
uh, increasingly uh, they're becoming more mixed use. So mixing uh, hotels with residential, with office, with retail uh, and residential. So there's a clear shift towards that. And, you know, in a way you can ask yourself, back then they were also kind of symbolic of wealthy corporations. Today, maybe they'd be symbolic of wealthy people, uh, wealthy individuals, right? So so maybe the response towards them should be the same as the way in which we looked at them before. I've been thinking about this reading your book and how you explain that the super talls now are, are trending towards mixed use and not office space as of old. And I mean, I've been thinking, and so many people have been thinking about the pandemic's effect on offices and people going to work. And maybe it's not going to be as drastic a shift if it's already been taking place in the real estate sector, in the commercial real estate sector. Like maybe it's just accelerated a trend that was already happening. Yeah, that was that was definitely one of the things that, that people are saying about Midtown Manhattan is that it was too commercial there wasn't enough residential there wasn't enough of a mix there and presumably then if the new buildings that go up are more mixed that's a welcome development yeah i I would say so you know monofunctional zoning as we used to call it like the idea of a business district where you just have commercial offices and like a dormitory town where you just have residential that's kind of an outdated concept Uh, and it stems from you know the early 20th century with modernism and the idea that you know everything needed to be logical and separate but that's not how we live right our our life cannot be compartmentalized in these things uh, and if we look at something like walkability right we we want to be able to walk everywhere within 50 minutes we want to be able to access our office go to you know a grocery store a restaurant to schools so this this mixed use idea uh, is is coming back and has proven to be quite resilient. So the financial district, for instance, which prior to maybe like a decade ago was really predominantly office, had become more residential. Some of the offices had been uh, converted to to residential, and I see more uh, restaurants. I think was much more resilient than than Midtown, which really became a ghost town right during COVID. And now around the world, cities are implementing what they call like the 15-minute city or the 20-minute city in which you can walk to any place within 15 to 20 minutes. So for a skyscraper to embody that also gives developers some benefits because they have multiple income income streams, right? Just a hotel, for instance, is very risky, uh, but having other types of or diversification can be beneficial. That's not to say it's easy to build a mixed-use skyscraper. It's very complicated because you're dealing with you know different regulations, uh, building codes regarding every use. So the avatar of this in New York, of course, is the much-loathed Hudson Yards development on the west side, which combines offices, retail, hotels, and a chunk of residential. And literally everyone hates it. Like how like you you have a chapter in your book about Hong Kong as the sort of archetypal skyscraper city of the future where you get this incre- these incredible mixed use develop developments. You have a subway station and then you come up into a shopping mall and then you have offices and then you have residential and it works really well in Hong Kong. What is it about Hudson Yards that should be Hong Kong and in fact just fails? 
Well, a, a big problem with that project is that it was built on top of rails, right? Actually, one of the largest rail yards. So they had to build a platform over it. So the, the air rights were, were sold or leased, I should say. So the problem with that is that that platform is really thick. As a result, if you, if you look at the, like the ground level on Hudson Yards, it's actually much higher than the street level. So the, uh, the it, it's more on the level of the of the High Line than it is on the streets. One of those problems was that uh, because it's higher, it, it really feels like an enclave. It doesn't feel like it's integrated in the city, right? And when you walk by it on the street level, there's lots of uh, you know entrances for trucks, blank walls. It, it doesn't feel like you know the excitement of let's say. Uh, you know, Fifth Avenue or with, you know, lots of the storefronts that you may expect a new development to have. So I would say that, you know, part of it was was really because the challenge was so big to build this on top of a real station. So that, that gave the designers uh, a lot of restrictions. You talk a lot in the book about comfort level for people who are, especially at higher levels in a building, buildings that are super talls. Uh, one of the points of backlash here to, to a lot of super talls that are residential is that people buy up those upper floors and then they don't live in them. So you don't really have a sense of what people living at, at that elevation are really experiencing. Uh, the closest thing I've ever had to it, I, I lived in one of the higher residential towers in Brooklyn uh, when it was the highest residential tower in Brooklyn during Hurricane Sandy and you could feel the whole building swaying and almost everybody in the top floor of the buildings went down to the basement for the duration of, because everybody was getting nauseated. How much do you think in, in super tall buildings specifically the, the building demand is really driven by residential demand where people actually do want to live at those heights and they're willing to tolerate some level of discomfort because of it? Yeah, that's a really good question. Well, we've seen a, a lot of complaints, right, of tenants of these apartments because of sway, for instance, right, or elevators that stop working because of the sway. And I think what this shows us that, especially these extremely skinny buildings, it, it, it shows us that, yes, we know how to do it, right? We know how to build that tall and that skinny, which is, you know, extremely difficult. But is it is it flawless? Is it comfortable? And the answer is no, right? I mean, there's elevators that make swooshing sounds that the moment they sway too much, they have to stop them and you can be trapped. You can feel uncomfortable. For residential, the standards are much higher than for office building, by the way. Because when you're in your office, typically you'd be busy doing things, right? You'd, you'd be you know, working or, or meeting. But in residential, there's many times that you're going to be by yourself and maybe staring at that uh, glass of water that suddenly <laughs> starts to ripple uh, because the building is, is swaying. So that's why for residential, uh, those defects are more apparent and that exacerbates these issues. Tell me about the pricing though. Like there is a revealed preference for living on high floors. In residential towers, the most expensive apartments are the ones right at the top, which sway the most. If I um, decided to, to give you, just because I'm feeling generous today, a full floor apartment in 432 Park, which is the, you know, one of these skinny scrapers in, in New York City, 
what floor would you choose? Would you choose the most expensive one at the top or would you choose one like lower down? I'd probably, you know, pick the top one. Yes, yeah. <laughs> but, but, <laughs> yeah high tolerance for motion sickness. Like, take it. <laughs> I'm not sure if I want to live there, but uh, but yes, yeah. <laughs> but it's it's weird, right? Everyone who lives there seems to hate it. There are all of these lawsuits going on. The elevators keep on breaking. They've had to put in like literal airlocks, like in order to go into the elevator in that building. You need to sort of pass through a series of sealed doors so that the the difference in air pressure between ground level and the top of the elevator shaft is so great that they they people wound up getting like stuck in the elevator for hours. So they needed to create this these systems to equalize the pressure and all of this crazy stuff. Um, and there are these hundred million dollar lawsuits against the developer, and yet that doesn't seem to have hurt the values in the apartment. There seems to be like you know it's a terrible place to live, but I still want to pay you know eighty five million dollars to buy an apartment there. Where does this demand, desire come from? Yeah, at a certain level, it becomes not just rational, it becomes status. And and we see this also in the history of New York's building. So there's the Empire State Building, for instance. Um, there's a, a great study by Jason Barr, who's an uh, economist, and he, he studies skyscrapers. And he looked at what he thought was kind of the you know, the perfect formula for a, a building from a profit perspective. You want to build uh, tall because you can put more floor space in and you can rent it in and rent it out. But if you go too tall, then you pay more for structure to make the building standing. And that would offset kind of the additional income you could get from leasing out those floors. So he made a really convincing argument that a building like the Empire State Building is not rational from a profit standpoint. It's purely because the developer wanted status, right? They they want to have the tallest building, which brings them value, uh, whatever that may be. But I think it's the same situation here. You know, it kind of defies human logic, right? It becomes a, a status object, like. Uh, you know, like a like a Gucci handbag or or, or a Maserati, right? Yeah, I was thinking that um, in reflecting on the book, it just seems like it's not really rational to build these super tall buildings. They're basically these kind of buildings go up when an economy is booming. Like you mentioned, the Empire State Building and Chrysler went up before the Great Depression. Great Depression happens; no one's building large buildings. We have just gone through this period of enormous economic expansion so of course these things went up again and they just sort of they just look like big symbols of extreme wealth inequality like is there a a reason to to build a really 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 tall building like a rational reason that makes sense for a city really yeah so we we use a term in architecture which is called you know efficiency of a of a building uh so we look at what's the usable space on the floor versus all the space that's dedicated to you know circulation elevator structures mechanical systems right uh, and if you look at these extremely tall buildings they have very low efficiency meaning that you know the taller you build the more space you lose for all the elevators that you need to get people up right all the structure that you need to have the building standing they defy that logic right but they have a kind of a logic of their own uh, in, in this case, people willing to pay up for those views and having that 
uh, status symbol. So it's kind of a different logic. And maybe, yes, you're right. Maybe those are kind of symptomatic of periods of economic expansion. And the real estate sector, I should say, is kind of like a lagging indicator of that because it takes so long for these projects to get built, right? So for these extremely tall buildings, it's, at least in New York, it, it sometimes took decades for all the air rights to be assembled, you know, for the permits to come in, the project to be designed, you know, the building to be constructed. Uh, so they're in a way behind, right? And also, yeah, if you go back to the kind of the, the Great Depression, there's a couple of examples of buildings that that were under construction and they were not finished. Um, and, you know, today they're still existing. After the Great Recession in 08, I lived in Williamsburg and it happened. And then there was like a two-year, three-year period where it was just like ghost towns of like unfinished construction projects. They were everywhere. And everyone was like, this is a disaster. What's going to happen? We're going to have, it's going to be awful. There's half finished construction projects. Lo and behold, it was fine. Like the, the economy picked up and now all those buildings are occupied. They're extremely expensive and no one can afford them. This is one of the crazy data points that I put in my newsletter earlier this month was the, um, Top floor of one Vanderbilt, which is one of the new super tools in New York City, just rented out at $322 a square foot um, for a space less than 10,000 square feet, which if you work it out, it's about just under, just about the size of two basketball courts. They're renting it out. A Canadian waste management company is renting out that space for north of $3 million a year. This isn't just plutocrats doing like consumption goods, you know? It's not like, well, I could spend $100 million on a Picasso, or I could spend it on an apartment, I may as well spend it on the apartment, it'll hold its value just as well. Yeah, this is a, you know, a commercial entity is spending $3 million to rent out a small but very high office. Like, can, like, does that, and then if that's the case, if developers know that people will be willing to spend that kind of money to rent out super high offices, then that obviously changes the economics of super tall buildings and makes them more attractive. Um, but that bit kind of puzzles me a little. Like, I, I can understand the personal ego thing and the residential thing of people wanting to be high. I, it, what puzzles me is, like, how does a Canadian waste management company justify to its shareholders spending that much rent on an office? It puzzled me too. In its, <laughs> in its defense of one Vanderbilt, I must say that the design is really quite intriguing because they have re relatively high ceilings. So, you know, that's another study that will be interesting to do if you look at the average ceiling height for offices. And part of the reason one Vanderbilt exists is because of the Midtown East rezoning, right? Because a lot of New York came to realize that a lot of the, the office stock in Midtown East wasn't really up to standard anymore because, you know, corporations expecting higher ceilings and kind of the, the standards changed over time. So the Chrysler building of the Empire State Building, that office space that was first class, you know, for a long period of time, no longer is, right? So for New York to remain competitive, the city decided we need to rezone, in this case, Midtown East, allowing developers you know, to build higher uh, in order to kind of refresh this this office stock. Uh, and I think one Vanderbilt kind of rep represents that 
And interestingly, the Midtown East rezoning in, in this case was kind of a quid pro quo. So developers were allowed to build higher if they contribute to you know, public improvements. So I believe for one Vanderbilt, there was a $200 million investment uh, that went into uh, public transit improvement. So Grand Central Station. So New York has a history of kind of cross-subsidizing uh, public goods with private development. You have the different. example in your book of, of Hong Kong where the, the transit agency is the only profitable subway in the world, basically, because they get to capture a bunch of the um, revenue from the increased revenue from the development rights that come along when you build a new subway station. Yeah, so Hong Kong is kind of the 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 dream of any transportation engineer because the MTR or the, the metro is superior, right? You can get to anywhere in the city within Oh my God, changing minutes. trains in Hong Kong is the most blissful <laughs> thing in the world. All subway systems should be like the Hong Kong sub subway Wait, systems. why? Why is it so great to change, to transfer? Because they do it the right, like in every other subway system, what you have is each line is separate. So you go, the line will go one way on one side and the other way on the other side, right? But you never want to change from a, from a train going one direction to going back to the way you came. In Hong Kong, they have all the lines going in the same direction next to each other. So you can- Well, that's very you smart. Can, it, it's, it's much, oh my God, it's, it's a thing of beauty. And they come so quickly and they're so clean and they're so efficient and yeah. They have Wi-Fi, uh, they have air conditioning, you have uh, nursery changing stations, uh, it just goes on and on. It's, it operates like clockwork. Uh, and because it's also a real estate developer, uh, it can kind of crop subsidize its, its, its transit, making it you know, relatively affordable and, and creating these seamless connections between buildings and subways. So very quickly from the, the metro station, you can rise up uh, into an office lobby. Uh, so it's it's yeah, a really unique case that um, is only possible because the transit authority is also a real estate developer. Well, and I just wanted to add when you were talking about New York City um, having real estate developers do public spaces, you have this whole story in your book how how that initially worked, which was they made these awful public spaces <laughs> where like the benches had spikes on them and no one was there. And, you know, it was like a total kind of joke. And, and the same thing is happening in Hong Kong, too, where you have like these security guards shooing people out of the so-called public spaces like this. Or, or Trump Tower is a classic example, like the ground floor of Trump Tower is supposed to be a public space. But you try hanging out there. Yeah. So in, in New York, thankfully, we, you know, people were onto that. <laughs> <laughs> and they started investigating. And yeah, they did find actually it was William White's it's a beautiful book that he wrote. Um it's called The Social Life of Small uh, Public Spaces. And there was also a documentary that he made. It was a very extensive research project of how people use public space. And yeah, he found out that a lot of these plazas were not designed for people to be there. And by the way, it wasn't just kind of hostile developers that did that with the spikes. It was also kind of architects' preferences because they, they wanted these vast empty spaces because they look good in architectural photographs, right? They punctuate space. Yeah, I, I used to walk across the, <laughs> the, the big plaza in between the two towers of the World Trade Center. I used to walk across it every day on my way to work. And it was the archetypal windswept empty plaza. Nothing 
ever happened in that plaza. It was just completely wasted space. One of the big things which we haven't really talked about, which runs through your book, and I really love about your book, is how you're always hyper-conscious of the environmental cost of buildings, and especially the concrete that goes into buildings. Which brings me to my favorite hobby horse of these days, which is 270 Park, which is the new headquarters of J.P. Morgan, which is going up in this Midtown East zone, two and a half million square feet, massive, great big building. They tore down a lead platinum, super efficient building that had been retrofitted, um, which used to be the tallest building in the world designed by a woman. Um, Beautiful building, 270 Park, tore it down. Um, the old Union Carbide headquarters, they are building a new building, which architecturally, like aesthetically, I think everyone hates um, by Norman Foster, or at least by Foster and Partners. But the thing that JP Morgan is really pushing here is its environmental credentials. They say that it's a zero carbon building. Is there such a thing as a zero carbon building? Like even conceptually, is that true? Or is this just a regulatory, like clever regulatory thing where they like signed a contract with one of the energy providers who's connected to a dam and they have this blockchain which says all of the energy and it's all electric. And if you heat with electric rather than your own cogen part, you know, gas fired boiler, is that actually greener? Yeah, no, that's, that's a very good point. Um, and I should say that the way in which we develop or you know define green buildings is very shallow uh, because we tend to think just about operational energy that we waste in buildings, like heating and cooling and running the elevators. No, I think that's based on a very limited conception of what is a green building because we tend to focus on uh, a green building that's, that's run... Uh, operationally very efficiently meaning all the energy that we use to heat the building uh, to cool the building or to to run the lighting that we have like energy saving devices or we're using renewable energy for that but what we don't take into this equation is all the energy that we need to construct a building Um, so if you look at the global carbon emissions 40 percent of that stems from buildings uh, two-thirds of that is from the building operations, and one-third of that is the all the energy that you use for the materials. So think about the concrete that goes into the walls, the floors, right? the steel, the metal, the glass. Uh, so you may have a building that is extremely efficient operationally, but you still have that enormous kind of carbon cost that you had in constructing this building in the first place. So think about concrete, for, for, for instance. It's incredibly hard on the planet. Uh, all the carbon that gets emitted by the process of creating con- concrete, and the major culprit is cement, which is one of the key ingredients. So in order to get cement, we need to uh, excavate mines and, and, and get a material like lime. Then we need to transport that lime to uh, a facility where we heat it up to more than a thousand degrees. So in that whole process, uh, we use energy, but not only that, when we heat up the cement, it emits emits carbon into the atmosphere uh, as a byproduct of this chemical process that creates cement. And then we still need to transport it to the site. We need to mix it with other stuff and create the building and then eventually maintain it and eventually take it down, right? So that is a tremendous amount of energy. There's no regulations 
about this, right? We have the energy code that's making sure that our buildings are run more efficiently. And by the way, the energy code is only kind of indirectly regulating the energy that we use for buildings. It's just saying that, oh, we need to have a certain facade that is well insulated and we need to have systems that are efficient. It doesn't say, oh, you can only run this amount of energy uh, for this type of building. That's that's changing, however, with a new law in, in New York called Local Law 97. But but broadly speaking, we only have regulation for the operational energy. The embodied energy or the energy that's in the building construction, that has been completely neglected. And maybe because it's been so complicated, uh, because you know architects are trained to use concrete and steel and glass, uh, even though we probably shouldn't, because these materials are really harsh on the planet. So little by little, we're seeing how also this is getting addressed. So Europe, for instance, has the circular economy framework and in which kind of new developers will, in the future, will have to do some life cycle assessment of their buildings. They have to justify how they're going to, you know, use recycled materials. And then when, when the building's lifespan has come to an end, how their own building will be dismantled and, and recycled. So I think we should have a, a numbers round here. My number, I'm going to, because it's vaguely on topic, I'm going to go, my number is $185, which is the amount of money you need to pay if you want to do something called City Climb at Hudson Yards. Now, City Climb at Hudson Yards, the, one of the big skyscrapers at Hudson Yards, has some stairs at the top on the outside of the building. And you can climb up a couple of stories at the outside of the building on a kind of diagonal. You clip yourself into the outside and you climb up a couple of stories up these stairs. And then once you reach the top, you get to a platform and you can kind of lean over the platform while, you're, while you have a rope holding you onto the building and you can look down. And for the privilege of doing of climbing up these stairs and looking down from a platform, the, the price is $185. Have um, you paid this price, Felix? So you're I, I, like, I don't do know anyone who has paid this. If anyone has paid this, or if you know anyone who has paid this, please email us on slatemoney at slate.com <laughs> because I want to talk to anyone who thinks that $185 on climbing some stairs is a great idea. But Elizabeth, you've done it, right? No. I'm terrified of heights, which is why your book fascinates me because all of it's irrational. I don't like being on the higher floors of super tall buildings, but yeah. So what's your number? Uh, so my number comes from a Bloomberg headline that's derived from Jamie Dimon's shareholders letter, which keep, just gift that keeps on giving, uh, where he brags about the fact that JP Morgan is responsible for $285 billion in climate sustainability financing. But then if you dig further into the piece, it also notes that they're responsible for 295 billion of uh, issuances of fossil fuel bonds. So where do you net out on that? <laughs> it's, it's, it's zero, man. It's always nets out at zero net if you're taking Morgan. <laughs> uh, they also note that this is partly the, the carbon offsets that they're buying are being powered by harnessing blockchain technology. And there there's no calculation in there for how much th that's costing on a climate basis cool yeah there's, there's yeah they, like this is the and this is all a, a local law 97 arbitrage it's this idea that you can get your hydropower 
blockchain something something blockchain to prove that it's all green run your all electric building on hydro and thereby ensure that it has zero emissions i i'm not sure i I can't intuitively understand that but emily what's your number my number is a little bit morbid but it's also to do with low-rise building if you think about it stay with me my number (laughs) is 56 percent That is the number of Americans who died and were cremated in 2020. This number is up. 60 years ago, it was less than 5% of Americans. Big change, sea change in the death industry. Back in the day, you used to have, you know, big cemeteries. There were almost kind of like parks. And now you could argue that this is this is kind of a progress in terms of space usage, maybe. I don't know. But um, this is from a piece in the Washington Post that we will link the to. The most expensive piece of real estate I've ever bought in my life on a per oh, square God. foot basis is a niche. It's like a one cubic foot niche at Greenwood Cemetery. And it's it's got north and West exposures. It overlooks the koi pond and it's glass on two sides. Oh wow. And and I'm I'm getting a little urn to put inside it. And oh, it was See, you took it really morbid, Felix. Oh yeah. I'm I'm telling <laughs> you, man. But the thing about the thing about this land is you're buying it in perpetuity and it's very hard to buy anything in perpetuity. Normally, uh, you know, once you buy any kind of property, you still have to pay property taxes, you know, you have to pay maintenance charges and all of that kind of stuff. But when you're when you're dead, you can't really pay any of that. So they have to charge all of the cost up front. Which is how how much was it? I have to ask. It was it was a significant four four figure sum. What? This how may be the most expensive though? Manhattan or, or New York City real estate that you've purchased. Oh, by <laughs> far. By far. I mean, at least on the square foot basis. I would say that my apartment did actually cost more on an absolute basis, but I have many, many more square feet, let alone more cubic feet. This is only like one cubic foot, this little niche. It's good real um, estate, though. I'm absolutely. Great view of the Statue of Liberty. I think that's oh actually a protected view shed. The view from Greenwood Cemetery to the Statue of Liberty, um, you're not allowed to build skyscrapers along that view because that view is protected. And that's not for the people buried there. It's for the people who visit the people buried there. Just it's oh, not okay. like we're just, preserving just, a view for <laughs> just, you. Just for the avoidance. Depending of on what you believe. Emily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just trying to make it a little lighter. I don't know. Feel <laughs> so bad for turning Steph, this. Stephen, bring us home here. What's your number? It's ten billion. So we collectively, every year, as a society, use ten billion tons of concrete. So wait, so that's, if there's 10 billion people on the planet, give or take, to an order of magnitude, that's a ton of concrete per person per year? Just Correct. Over. Correct. More than a wow. ton. And, and that's about 20 bathtubs full for every person every year, which is crazy. Is so it's not just buildings. Uh, it's also infrastructure, bridges. And then presumably for those of us in the rich world, we massively over-index on that. The, the rich world, mm-hmm. you know, the, is is using more concrete per capita than, you know, say, sub-Saharan Africa. Well, Ch- China is, um, because they're the ones... China's the big one, yeah. ...developing so much. That I think in a, a couple of years, they use more concrete than the United States did in the entire 20th century. Um, just a sheer amount of, of building. Uh, that took place. It's one of the most consu- consumed resources in the world after water. 
And as, 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 and as someone who lives in the concrete building, I can tell you, I think about it a lot. <laughs> if you think about what would happen if our society would come to collapse, archaeologists, they would find the earth in this orange concrete crust, right, with all the rebar rusting, it would be a, a weird sight. On which note, I think we'll wrap up Slate Money for this week. Thank you, Steph and Al, for coming on the show. It was amazing and wonderful to have you on. And we, yeah, go everyone go out and buy your book, which is called Super Doll, buy it at your local independent bookstore. Uh, many thanks to Shana Roth for producing. And we'll be back next week with more Slate Money. You talk a lot about uh, glass in particular being important to uh, the preferred aesthetics of most of the stuff that we're getting, that are still getting built now. Um, how much do you think that sort of preference for uh, curtain wall buildings with glassy facades is preventing adoption of more sustainable materials? And how do you get in front of that if it really is just an aesthetic preference that drives commercial preferences? Yeah, it's a huge problem. Uh, gl glass is a uh, you know beautiful to to look at and look through, but it's also a horrible insulator. Um, and it may be you know great to have a glass building for growing tomatoes, right, <laughs> in, in a greenhouse, but to actually uh, work there uh, in a in a kind of glass tower that's taller than other towers, kind of bathing in the sun, that's just asking for trouble, right? So these towers are very much dependent on air conditioning. So there's been a move away from glass uh, through this new movement called the Passive House Movement, uh, which originated in Germany. And, and they're looking at uh, kind of having less windows. Uh, and they're looking at things like the window wall ratio, having less windows per wall. Uh, but still, how can we create a building that's aesthetically that with that crystalline aesthetic that we so much appreciate uh, but maybe achieve that for other types of uh, building materials so there's been a couple of uh, new buildings that kind of represent that that shift um, so so yeah that that is a again a societal preference that's that's hurting us right and and something that will probably have to change but it's going to take a long time what we have one of those new buildings in right here in new york or not in manhattan we have it on roosevelt island as part of the new cornell campus there and it's uh it's like a dormitory building right is 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 this passive building there like as as an architect just aesthetically speaking what do you make of it yeah i i i think it's 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 difficult when you don't have glass to your disposal. How can you make it still kind of beautiful and 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 give it that shimmer or crystalline? And I think there's other types of materials that you can use. For instance, there's a return of uh, ceramics um, as a kind of a cladding system in skyscrapers. And it can be really beautiful, right? And the way it kind of glimmers in the sun. Uh, 